folks, welcome back to the Big C Church podcast, where we have challenging conversations to better the body of Christ. I'm Angie Ward. I'm your host. Uh, we are continuing our series. This is the last installation of our series on what is evangelicalism. We've had a number of voices, and I will link to those in the show notes. But today we are having a conversation with a black evangelical. And um, today we're talking with my friend, Brandon Washington. Brandon is right here in Denver. He is the lead pastor of Embassy Christian Bible Church. He's a alum of, along with me, of Denver Seminary, serves on the board there. Um, and he is also the author of A Burning House. And I'm going to look up the um, Redeeming American Evangelicalism by Examining Its History, Mission, and Message. It's a great book. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. And then he's a contributor to Urban Apologetics, Volumes 1 and 2. Uh, so, Brandon, so good to have you here to hit record on the kind of stuff we talk about all the time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. Uh, well, so like we were talking about before we hit record, we'll start with the question that I've asked everybody who's uh, well, except maybe President Mark Young, we're talking about what is evangelicalism, but would mm. you consider yourself an evangelical? And then what do you I mean do. by that? So what do you mean oh, by that? Okay. And this, is, this is the softball for you. Yes, that is, I've actually given this a little thought. So I, I do identify as evangelical. And um, in fact, I, I realized the need to defend that because I am a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. Mm. And once, maybe five or six years ago, I was registering for the annual meeting of that of that guild. And a friend of mine was with me and he saw me doing that and he exclaimed, you're an evangelical. Mm. And that conversation made me appreciate the need for me to defend what evangelicalism is and why I maintain my affiliation with the movement. I do think I have to be careful in how I define it. So uh, yeah. I am influenced, deeply influenced by uh, historian David Bevington. Yep. And we've talked and about the quadrilateral. quadrilateral. Yep. On other episodes. Yes, it's, feel free to talk about that again. We'll link to it. Yeah. One of the reasons it's important to me, in fact, I, I became familiar with, familiar with the, the Bevington's quadrilateral while I was a student at Denver Seminary. And, uh, and, and the, the, at first glance, it's the same thing I would expect anyone to say, uh, uh, the biblicism, uh, uh, crucicentrism. I, I expect people to use that, that language, conversionism. But the one that stood out for me was conversion, uh, was activism. Activism as a value of evangelicalism. And one of the things that was important to me is David Bevington was not prescribing what evangelicalism should be. He was functioning. He was acting as a historian. Mm -hmm. So he was describing what the movement has been historically. And I would, I would contend that much of what we're dealing with now is not the shortcomings of evangelicalism. I would argue that it's, it's our abdication of our theological identity. It's a stepping away from the history, from it's, it's us not recognizing some of the values that were innate to, that are innate to who we are and that gave rise to some of the cultural, the social values in both uh, England, Europe in general, and then in North America. Stepping away from that has turned us into a political movement, which is why defining it is so important. But if I were to describe what it is, I would cite Bevington's Quadrilateral, Biblicism, uh, conversionism, 
uh, crucicentrism and activism. Those four qualities are the reason I, without reservation, with no reservations at all, I maintain, I, 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 I associate with the movement and its values. So, um, and I've read A Burning House, you know, I've heard more of your journey. Originally, you kind of, I think, assumed, well, yeah, I'm an evangelical, but then people questioned you uh, and said, uh, really? You know, and th- so so was that a a fraught journey or was that kind of, I think I am, oh, no, I really am? I mean, what kind of um, speed bumps have you come across in that journey? Yeah, the okay, the, it is still a fraught journey. I'm still in the midst of that. I'm still processing. The I have... I can appreciate, while I do not agree with dear friends who eschew the term evangelical, I can appreciate why they do. Yeah. I can see them from where I am. I can see them. And and one of the complications there is, uh, is I think that we're dealing with some of the shortcomings of evangelicalism that is unique to the West, especially America. One of the challenges I offer my friends is, Evaluate evangelicalism from a global perspective, because I would contend that if you look at evangelical camps in the global South and in the East, they embody some of the values that I that I observe in Bevington's quadrilateral. They do it more deliberately in the West and in America, especially. We're very individualistic, mm-hmm. but if you look at a communal setting where evangelicalism is thriving in a in a among a people for whom community is a central value. Mm-hmm. then you'll see the biblical expression of this movement. You'll see the theological value that's, you'll see it for all it's worth. So I'm dealing with the complexities, but I think the complexities we're dealing with are unique to the West, especially America, because for some time now, I think we're going to get into this today, for some time now, the movement has become a political tribe mm-hmm. instead of a theological movement. And that's a stumbling block for many people like me who can appreciate the orthodoxy of the movement, the the, the theology of the camp, mm-hmm. but they struggle over the practical expression of it, the orthopraxy. That's a stumbling block. And I can understand why that will be an issue for some people. Well, and it sounds like um, uh, various... I would probably say factions because there are polarizations within it. Uh, does it depend on, uh, is that divided because of their views of activism? Like what does activism mean and look like? Which then That's exactly right. I want to be careful. Right? Yes. I'll, I'm glad you did that. I want to be careful to not, the, I, I always try to, 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 to clarify two points here. When I say evangelical, when I say I, I, I'm stumbling over evangelicalism, I do emphasize the fact that I'm, a talk, I'm talking about American evangelicalism. Yeah. But I also want to point out carefully that it's not that evangelicalism, even in America, is anti-activism. It's that the movement is selectively activistic. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll take a hard stand on the uh, on a biblical definition of marriage or... Uh, on the matter of abortion, that's that's a that's a point of def- definition for us. And I happen, I, was, I didn't say this frankly. I happen to agree on on many aspects. I don't like the expressions of it sometimes, but many aspects of their message of the message when it comes to biblical marriage and abortion. But the complication for me is the same the same values that have me advocate for the unborn. Have me advocate for the for the twenty five year old who is unjustly treated or even killed. This is the same value, the doctrine of 
of the Imago Day. The image of God applies to all of humanity and it has no expiration date. So I cannot treat the pre-born person as more valuable than the born person. And I think that that because we have selectively decided what issues will be our issues of activism, we are we are ostracizing, we're marginalizing an entire people group who agree with us theologically, but can't but stumble over us practically. The expression of our faith is the stumbling block. It's not the th- the details of our theology at all. So, but in you ch- you choosing a broader activism uh, perspective on activism and application of it, you have been ostracized uh, from some uh, by some gatekeepers. Is that right? Talk a little bit about yes, that. Yes, lost. Yeah, I have lost friends. Yes, the I am. So here's this is. That one of the complications with how we are defining evangelicalism is we're pitting what I would argue is authentic evangelicalism that is mindful of broader, practical, real world. To use the language that uh, that Vernon Grounds used, real world or this worldly needs, where, the, where, where we, we stumble over applying the gospel to things that are occurring in the lives of people right now. The, one of the problems is we will we will compare that action to other worldviews that we've deemed unacceptable. So mm-hmm. I have consistently had to to defend self against the accusation of being a critical race theorist. Yeah, and uh, I am I am familiar with critical race theory, but only because I had to study it because so often I was labeled that. And what I've concluded is. Critical race theory has some virtues. It has some vices. There are some problems, but it has some virtues. And and so I stand next to a critical race theorist and I identify that person as a co-belligerent. There are things that we both stand against, but we didn't get to the same, we didn't come to the same conclusion using the same route. We used two different routes. And I and I tell my friends who are critical race theorists, you accidentally landed in the right place on some of these issues. Yeah. The problem is, since we're saying the same thing, we're the same camp. Since we're saying the same thing, we're the same person. So I'm dismissed mm-hmm. as critical race theorists. Or, or uh, the, the, the somehow woke became a pejorative. And to be called a social justice warrior is to accuse me of being almost... Uh, a a a it's an accusation of almost walking away from the faith, and I would argue that not only is that not stepping away from the faith, that's an embodiment of our faith. The even David Bevington, when he cited examples of activism, the one he consistently referenced consistently was the was the stand that that uh, William Wilberforce took against slavery in England. He cited that as an example of it. And and early 20th century evangelicals like Vernon Grounds and uh, early to mid 20th century, like Vernon Grounds and Carl F.H. Henry, they identified social justice as an essential aspect of the gospel. In fact, Henry said to separate the gospel from social justice is to truncate our message. Mm-hmm. That's a paraphrase there, but he said the, to to separate the two is a truncation of our message, and he was speaking specifically in the context of American Jim Crow 
segregation. So he wasn't just talking about some nebulous idea of what social justice is. He was speaking of the racial divide that exists in America. And he identified that as essential and if a fundamental part of, of who we are as a movement. And the idea of being charged with stepping away from the faith today, because I agree with what Carl F.H. Henry said, is most troubling to me. But I want to take a stand, and I'm not going to waver on this. And it sounds like, I mean, and I've in your book too, you, where others have said, you know what, there's too much mess and muck in this thing now called evangelicalism. It's just become too gross in parts. You think it's worth... Uh, fighting for and reclaiming. I think you said in your book, you you call for the repentance of others, not your own exit, basically. Yes. So, but I know there's been times because I follow you in social media where you're like, I, I'm about done. What keeps you in there? There have been some rough times. Yeah. Now, you, you are, because of our proximity to one another, you are able to witness bad days. And I, I have I'm, bad days. I'm witnessing our, your journey, which, and my yeah. journey, which always include bad days. Yes, it includes it, it, it includes bad days. I'm yeah. there was a time days, when I right yeah the frustrating I, the, there was a time when I would have thought I should I should I should be private with those days mm. because I don't want anyone to walk away from my overall message confused because mm. I, I'm certain that people walk away thinking well this is not what he said last Tuesday he he agreed with my stance on this last Tuesday but. But that's exactly what it is. It's a moment of it's a moment of stumbling. It's a moment of discontent. Again, I can well I do not agree with dear friends, and I say this carefully. Some of my friends are not they're they they've eschewed the term evangelical, but they remain orthodox. Mm-hmm. Lowercase O, orthodox. They their theology is unchanged, but they they step away from the movement. And when I when I have conversations with them, when I engage them on this, consistently the answer is they've concluded that evangelicalism is not a theological movement. It is a political tribe. And the problem with it being a political tribe is that tribe has chosen to to move its ideology forward using political parties. And the only way it could choose party is to find the few overlapping values between our faith and a party and ignore the anything outside of those few overlapping points of agreement. And that will sometimes result in an abdication of our mission. It it overlooks our broader responsibility as kingdom people in a fallen world. And on those days, I can see why they would say, this is a tribe, a political tribe, not a theological movement. And you even wonder, just in a transparent place, I wonder, is there a hope for something like that? The, 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 my agenda, my goal is to redeem evangelicalism from within. Hmm. It's very difficult to redeem something when its principles don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yes. If you, you, I mean, the the first the first step toward recovery is conceding the need to recover, and if and and consistently I, I'm wrestling with the reality that many of my friends, dear friends, people I've known for years, are they they question I'm apostate because I question our proper expression. Are we properly expressing 
the faith that we claim to hold dear. Those are bad days. Well, and um, you're trying to call it from, you know, you write that you're a guest in, you're not even a full-fledged member of the household by some yes. qualifiers or, you know, and so, so you're trying to do it from even from the margins, which is even harder. Yes. Right. To do. Yes. In fact, the, 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 the book is entitled A Burning House because um, I, I, I don't even know how to describe how I came to that title because it's, it's can be misleading. I, the original expression of that language is James Baldwin. He, in his, uh, uh, his extended essay, uh, the fire next time he asked, do I wish to be integrated into a burning house? And then Martin Luther King, who was familiar with James Baldwin. In fact, I love pointing this out in an interview. He doesn't refer to him as James. He calls him Jimmy. And that, that that's that's a proximity that I took note of. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, a, in an interview, I think with NBC, he said that that uh, that he he noted Jimmy's comment on integrating into a burning house. And the thing about Martin Luther King is everyone stops quoting him after 1964. Mm-hmm. Everyone can mention "I Have a Dream." Everyone can mention being attentive to content of character versus the color of skin. And there are two problems I have with that. Number one, that is the improvised. This is an often overlooked part of that. And as a preacher, I take note of it. Everyone's harping on the improvised, the ad-libbed part of that message. He spent the previous 30, 35 minutes explaining how America has written a bad check and it needs to make, and it needs to make good on the commitment, the promise it made to the citizens that were standing in front of him. And toward the end of that message, um, sitting behind him, Mahalia Jackson said, tell them about the dream, Martin, tell them about the dream. And so then he turned toward that ad-libbed part of the message. And that's the only part anyone knows. So he stopped quoting him because that is such an impressive delivery, such an impressive message that that's all we discuss. But we missed the fact that starting in 1965, he communicated regret over that message. He said it was naive. It was a little bit too, uh, it was too rosy eyed. And in a conversation in 1968, only a month or two before he was killed, in a conversation with Harry Belafonte, he said, I believe we've integrated our people into a burning house. Mm -hmm. And what he was observing there is we're, we're able to have laws changed. We're able to outlaw segregation. But who cares if we're all together in the same place, if that place is on fire, especially if some of those in the house are relational arsonists. They're, they, they, are, they are arguing against the need for us to be well. My entire Christian life has been an attempt to bring diversity and integrated value to evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And that comes from the fact that I come out of a, I was a sympathizer of the Nation of Islam for the duration of my teenage years. And that is a racist, segregationist cult. And then I become a believer, and I see that the church looks too much like the cult hmm. out of which I've just been delivered. And so my goal has been to integrate the church. But I, I now wonder, am I bringing people into a house that's on fire? And are those inside the house the arsonists? And, and how much... How much 
effort goes into attempting to repair something that no one thinks is broken. Yeah. That's the discontent. Those results, those moments, those ideas result in the occasional bad day that you've observed. But at the same time, on the, I stand on 1 Corinthians 15. This is, I think I'm supposed to, to stand fast and be unmovable. I think that the word evangel is too valuable a word mm. to dismiss. We have to, we cannot let it be co-opted. We have to redeem it and bring it back to its, uh, to its original worth and defend its value. So just a small task. I'm sure you'll have it done by Christmas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, that would be my gift to everyone. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are folks who are self-appointed gatekeepers, you know, and so mm. when uh, Dr. Mark Young and I, we talked about what is evangelicalism and who gets to s decide, how are you going to... When you look at this burning house and, you know, trying to redeem and stop the fire, convince people it's on fire, what needs to happen gatekeeper-wise? Like, who gets to decide and who appointed them gatekeepers and then how do you change that? Okay, so this is... Now we're talking big uh, systems. Yeah, you're, okay. you, you, this, so you're, you're bringing me to the point where we have to evaluate some of the history here. So. Okay. Uh, so I would argue that that one of the complications we're dealing with here is we're just bad historians. Mm -hmm. And I would say willfully bad historians. It's our historicism, in fact. It's ignoring how the previous chapters of our story gave rise to the one that we that we are presently living in. And uh I would I would I would say that one of the complications we're dealing with is uh in the in the 19th century, because there was no need to politicize the racial hierarchy, the the ethnic caste system, because it was already it was already implanted. It was it was grounded in law and 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 cultural norms. There was no need to politicize the movement. The movement did exist as a theological backing for those laws, but there was no need to politicize it. But immediately after World War, I'm sorry, immediately after the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. There, immediately after the Civil War. The goal was to have the same racial hierarchy despite the laws being overturned. And so we started to take on this gradual walk, this gradual march toward politicizing the identity. And that gradual walk gave rise to the overthrow of Reconstruction. It gave rise to the Jim Crow era that went on for 100 years in the aftermath of the Civil War. And even that started to weaken in the 1960s because you had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you had the Fair Housing, Fair Housing Act, you had the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. those, those values that were functioning as bungees that kept snatching us back socially, snatching us back to the 1865, 1866 era, they, were, they began to weaken. So the need to politicize those theological values became important. And I would, I would argue that, that that political movement is only about 50 years old. It happened in the late 60s, early 70s. Yep. It's only about 50 years old. And, and, and the fundamentalists, not necessarily evangelicals, not what I would say, not people I would say who are dyed in the wool evangelicals, not the Vernon Grounds of the world, not the Carl Henrys of the world, not the Billy Grahams of the world, the, the, the camp that was fundamentalist, they noticed evangelicalism 
as a label often associated with born-again Christian camps. And there was a popular term, so they co-opted it. Mm. And they aligned it with a political tribe. And the that political identity, is it became the filter through which we decide who the gatekeepers are. They were the leaders of institutions and televised ministries. I'm very carefully avoiding names here. Is that right. is that something we're going to be doing? Okay. Uh, yeah, well, you, can, you can say what you want. I'll publicize yeah, it. Yeah, I think that... Yeah, I think that I think that Jerry Falwell Senior yeah. became the prototype of gatekeeper. I think that from a from a Christian perspective, and then from a political, a conservative political perspective, you have William F. Buckley Jr. They became the prototype of who the gatekeeper is, and so subsequent generations, instead of evaluating our identity, evaluating our values. They were looking for the progeny of the gatekeeper, who's a photocopy mm-hmm. of the original gatekeepers. And so now we're dealing with people who are a generation or two removed from that original camp. And the, and the, and they, are, they, they, they achieved that position based on how similar the founders of that, that 50-year-old movement were. If they look like the original founders of the camp, then they became the voices of it. And anyone who says something different from those leaders, they're put on the outside. They're put on the margins. They're poor representatives of the movement. So now we're just navigating that. And I thought the goal, my original plan was you stand firm because that generation will pass. But they're doing a better job of reproducing mm. and investing in subsequent generations than I anticipated. So this is going. this is a lifelong venture. This may be... The, this is a venture that my children are going to inherit that will last the duration of their lives. That's the complication I'm, mm. I'm wrestling with right now. Mm. You know, we've talked about the, the Bebbington quadrilateral. I've experienced that there's also um, theological gatekeepers over the biblicism piece and whose interpretation of yes. biblical. And so, um, you know, there's, 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 there are evangelicals or purported evangelicals who would say that uh, maybe our institution that we're involved with is too liberal, you know, I mean, yeah. and, uh, you know, and so, so everybody just starts, th- and if you throw out liberal, that's, you know, oh, stay away, you know, kind of thing. And so, so I've experienced uh, people who say we, um, not only is activism defined differently or to a different degree or, or breadth, but also um, what is the, cru- or conversionism, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And biblicism mm-hmm. and, I mean, I've had, it becomes this, this hedge around, around the law, around the Torah and saying, okay, not only are you uh, give a high value to scripture, but to this particular interpretation of scripture, and it gets narrower and narrower and more specific mm-hmm. on certain things. And if you fall without that, you know, fall out of that in any way, for example, I, as a, as a female egalitarian, the institution I got my mm-hmm. doctorate, I was told that that was a second tier heresy issue. And that that's that's a definition of I mean and even I mean and those are the people who are one set of gatekeepers theologically. Let me, let, okay, so here's how I try to, to to drive that point home. Just just jamming with you for on this for just a moment. Yeah, the, I think what we're dealing with here is the complication. The very the very existence of gatekeepers is a is a it creates it, it creates a problem that is only perpetuated each gener- with each generation because no one 
can just determine who we are except the gatekeepers. And they and one of the things that they do as gatekeepers is they decide who the determiners are. Right. So, so one of my favorite examples of that system. It's, it becomes an echo chamber. We just, yeah. we just, it just, we're just amening one another without getting any broader perspective. One of my, one of the the examples that comes to mind for me is I was watching the the I, I watched a conference that was hosted by a very large church in California, and all these personalities who are who are of the gatekeeper level, where they did a panel discussion, and a question was asked from the audience. What do you think of the of the I think it was the Southern Baptist Convention who made this decision that they're never going to assemble another translation committee, another Bible translation community that that does not uh, include a a black person, Mm -hmm. a Latino person and a woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, the response to that was. To to it was a mocking response and said, why don't we just get people who know Greek and Hebrew? Well, as someone who graduated from seminary. I know that. That's a, an extreme oversimplification. If you think that you don't bring your theological presuppositions to a translation, you are willfully self-deluded. Yeah. That's just that's a that's a disservice to you and anyone who exists under your leadership. It's just a good idea for you to expose yourself to people who have perspectives other than yours, because while that perspective will not create reality it will allow you to see something that you didn't notice before. It's always been there, but you didn't notice it before. It will help you better appreciate it. I, When I took Greek, for example, in seminary, I, I, I realized that, that theological presumptions affected how the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the New International Version translated Romans 16. Hmm. The, the NASB made Junia in Romans 16 for a man. Yep. ESV allowed her to be a woman. I'm, I'm, they gave her permission to be a woman, but said because she's a woman, she's not an apostle. She's outside the apostolic mm-hmm. camp. The NIV concedes that she's both a woman and apostolic. Mm-hmm. Their theological backing shaped how they translated that verse. And the, and, and, the, and the text allowed for a little bit of wiggle room for all of them to do that in that way. It's, it's just a good idea for you to expose yourself to people who have perspectives other than your own. I benefited from the fact that my Greek professor was a woman. And that is something that I try to drive home. I think we have to expose ourselves to the experiences and perspectives of others within the camp. So they can show us something that has always been there, but has gone unobserved by us. The, the way I try to illustrate that is my wife drives a minivan. She drives a Chrysler Town and Country. And uh, she prom- she made me promise before we got married that she would not have to drive a minivan. And uh, she just she, she has a certain, I don't know, fashion standard that minivans don't work with. <laughs> and um, and so we we I made that commitment, not giving it much thought. And then we had children, and children come with stuff. They, I mean, car seats, rear-facing car seats, which basically take up two seats, yeah. <laughs> and diaper bags, and strollers, and for things years. of that sort. We needed yeah, exactly. for years, yeah. years. In fact, my children are less than two years apart. So just as we were about to graduate from that, we started all over again. And the uh, so as I, I said, we need to do something about this vehicle. Because our four car, our four door sedan was not going to work, 
And we ended up uh, renting because she made me promise I, I, I gave up on that battle. But just coincidentally, we rented a minivan and we drove to Dallas for Christmas. And before we made it to Dallas, she said, oh, I could do this. <laughs> I don't, she, 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 she joined the, the minivan clan on the way there. When we got back less than a week after getting home, we bought one. It had everything we need, stow and go seating and the DVD player. And, and we don't even, the children even have Bluetooth headphones. So we don't have to listen to what they're watching, that kind of thing. And as we're pulling out of the dealership, a twin van, identical in color and everything drove by. And before we got home, we saw four more. And I joked with my wife when we pulled into the park in our driveway. And I said, word got out that we bought this van and we're trendsetters. So a bunch of people went out and bought the same van. <laughs> But, but Angie, you know that's not what happened. Those vans were always there. We just didn't notice them yeah. until we had an experience with the van ourselves. I try to explain to people when people of color, when women, when they communicate the struggles being of being second, third class citizens within their own theological camp, instead of telling them, no, you're not, instead of being dismissive, submit to the benefits of their firsthand experience because you may inherit from them lenses that allowed you to see something that was always there that was but was unobserved by you when you have a gatekeeper approach to doing theology our camp will only see what the gatekeepers see and will be limited to their perspective, and we will not be effective in carrying out the the whole mission God has called us to. Yeah, you know, along. Tell me what you think of this. You know, with that gatekeeper mindset, I just I just think that's the wrong uh, model. Even to just think that somebody needs to be the gatekeeper, and, and within Protestantism, I don't think it's possible anyway. Nobody can declare themselves. The nature of Protestantism, we, we protested and schismed all over right. over the place. But I've also I've wrestled with: Do I, you know, I work for an evangelical institution. Do am I evangelical? Do I keep that? name and and like you i've concluded i'm not going to let somebody take it away from me just because they have mm -hmm. self-appointed themselves as some gatekeeper uh because i get to have my you know understanding if i look at the historical like you did you know and the the theological and and the pieces and go okay can i i'm going to try to hold on to a re, um a redeemed uh maybe historically you know foundational orthodox evangelicalism and I've determined my methodology is not to try to create a gatekeeper or a system from on high, but to take what mm. I think is kingdom, which is the mustard seed approach, and to yes. give people those experiences and to plant those seeds on the ground instead of trying to declare it or mandate it from on high. That's where I've landed yes. as well. I think we're probably pretty similar places with kind of methodology. Yeah, I'm warring against the gate. I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be critical of gatekeeper mindset and then use that tactic for my own yeah. benefit. To my, we, then to we're to just wishing for different careful. gatekeepers. Yeah, exactly. You That's all we're we doing. We're, hoping, we're wishing, we're, we're pointing ourselves to a position that we think that, that we think shouldn't exist. Yeah. Uh, I think that what, I think the approach to this should be more a matter of mutual beneficial submission. I think that if we coexist in in a way where we hear one another's voices around our, our the values and identity of the movement, we will all benefit 
from the experiences and the understanding of others within the camp. Instead of appointing a few, let's exist as let's, let's exist in that egalitarian. Let, let me be this moment, this person for just a moment. Let's exist in that 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 complementarian benefit among equals. It's egalitarian in that respect. Right. I think that we could we could grow in our, in a willingness to hear one another. We will benefit from one another in a way that better embodies who we are as a movement, and it displays our theological values with a much more biblical. Uh, with a much more biblical identity. I think we are so focused on the gatekeepers that the apostles stopped being gatekeepers. Mm. Those who are interpreters of the apostles have now, now have greater authority than the people we're supposed to turn to to understand who we are as a movement. Mm. Yeah. What gives you hope right now? I mean, we've talked about sometimes you have bad days, but what what's giving you hope? Yeah. Well, I think that, okay, that's a that's a... We could have had 30 minutes on that one. Okay, so here's what gives me hope. The gospel is unchanged. I think that we've changed, but the gospel is unchanged. In addition to that, I would I would contend that Christ is not merely the messenger of the gospel. He is the gospel, which is the reason the gospel is unchanged. In addition to that, I think that much of what I'm struggling with is how evangelicalism looks in the West. But I look at the global East, the global South, where it's thriving. While while evangelicalism is in decline in the West, this is work done by, I've, I've seen both uh, Michael Byrd and Philip Jenkins yep. give this quite a bit of time and attention, that it's in decline in the, in the West. It's thriving in the East. And I think that happens for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. First, I think that the communities in the East and in the global South are much more open to supernatural things. I think we are, we are much more products of the enlightenment where even the church, which warred against modernity in the early 20th century, but we did it on modernity's terms. So we became modernists. And so we will often try to reduce God to human understanding. Whereas if you go to many other parts of the world, they allow for the idea that God is supernatural and beyond our grasp in many respects. I think that allows them to thrive. It makes them much more praying, submitting, and fasting people. But in addition to that, they're communal by nature. Mm -hmm. They're communal. Their goal is to, if one member of the community is injured, the entire community is unhealthy. In contrast, in America, we have a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mindset. We have an individualistic approach to it. We're reading scripture through Western eyes and the Bible is not a Western book. If we read it according to its original context, we will become a community of people who seek the well-being, seek the wholeness of one another. And that activistic aspect of who we are will be expanded and we'll have a much more comprehensive, broader message. The gospel is unchanged. And I think that the benefit that we can have, the, the hope we can have is we can sit at the feet of global evangelicals and ask them, how does the gospel look in a fallen world from your perspective? That doesn't mean you embrace everything blindly, but you sit down and have rational conversations with fellow believers and ask them, 
how they think the gospel is embodied in a fallen world. The mistake we made is we decided to cloister ourselves and evaluate those outside of our camp, those in other parts of the world, instead of going to them and benefiting from them. Bishop Desmond Tutu would have been an asset to the American church during Jim Crow, during separate but equal, because he has done the theology from experience in a, an apartheid state. He would have been an asset. Instead of listening to him, we evaluated him. And some of our heroes, this is something that I, I, I have overlooked in this conversation that needs a moment of attention. Some of our heroes justified ignoring him. So we, when I, so in seminary, we're reading Jonathan Edwards. We're reading George Whitfield. We're reading Abraham Kuyper. But uh, Edwards and Whitfield were enslavers. And Kuyper justified the apartheid in South Africa by pointing out a distinction in the racial hierarchy. If we had given Desmond Tutu a voice among the Kuypers of the world, we would be a much more comprehensive movement. The solution is to repent of that past mistake and sit at the feet of fellow believers in other parts of the world and hearing from them, the potential to hear from them gives me hope. Yeah, that's great. Well, well, thank you for your efforts in uh, trying to yeah, subvert or, or change some systems, even when it's very frustrating and, and difficult. I thank you for doing it. I know you're doing the same. So this may have been a little bit of an echo chamber, but I think every now and then we need to get together and encourage one another. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's good for listeners. You know, like I said, I'll put in the show notes, a lot of the stuff we've, well, all the stuff we've talked about today, your book and some of the other ones that have been influential. Um, so just great to have this conversation. And I look forward to more with you down the road. I'm looking forward to it.